Welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Zainab Azarbadagan, and today we're speaking with Mary Roberts. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Zainab. It's lovely to be speaking with you today. Thank you for being here. Mary Roberts is the John Schaefer Professor of Art History at the University of Sydney. She specializes in 19th century British and Ottoman art with particular expertise in Orientalism, the history of artistic exchanges between the Ottoman Empire and Europe, and the culture of travel. Today, we'll talk about how Istanbul became a global center of production, circulation, and exhibition of visual culture in the 19th century. We will discuss the connections and contestations between the Ottomans and the Orientalists, and how various networks of patronage and apprenticeship led to works produced in Istanbul to end up all over the world. We will draw on Professor Robert's book, Istanbul Exchanges, Ottomans, Orientalists, and 19th Century Visual Culture, published by University of California Press in 2015. So, first we will ask Mary about the relationship between Ottoman Orientalist painters, the transformation of Ottoman painting in the 19th century, and the importance of Istanbul in the visual culture of the 19th century. Then we will shift topics to talk about the place of Ottoman court, and Para as centers in the networks of production and circulation of visual culture within Istanbul. And finally, we'll discuss the relationship between painting and other forms of visual culture in the 19th century. So, Mary, what makes an Ottoman painting? And what is its relationship to Orientalist painting? Oh, that's such a wonderfully tough question. Um, I think part of my project has actually been to think about the idea that Ottoman paintings aren't just paintings made by Ottoman subjects um, and to think about the kind of collaborations where one might think about the multi-authoring of something we would call an Ottoman painting and to think about that history. It may simultaneously be produced by Sultan Abdelaziz and his court painter Stanislaw Lobowski and one of our challenges is to think about how we understand it as, as a cross-culturally produced object that can still stand at, in the Ottoman context as a, a, an Ottoman painting. And what is this relationship to Orientalist painting? I guess we have we have now a, a very well-known model for thinking about what Orientalist painting is, and uh, that stems from Said's book Orientalism, published in 1978 and transposed into art history by Linda Nochlin in 1983. And I think that all, the question of what is Orientalism is is has been put into question in in recent years. And I think the the Orientalist paintings that interest me are ones that are produced by those who, for whom uh, this question of their domination over cultures of the East is less clearly established. Um, artists from, for instance, uh, Central and Eastern Europe who might be working for the Ottoman court, um, artists whose careers are spent in Istanbul and who have no profile in Europe. I've had a long-standing interest in Mary Adelaide Walker, who's an amateur artist. So amateur artists... Um, who, whose practice is not actually, doesn't have the professional profile of, say, the, the sort of arch villains of Orientalism like Jean Leon Chouron. So, what is the difference in features of the artist that you're interested in and somebody like Jerome? Well, I'm also interested in Jerome, but, but my take on Jerome is actually to think about who was actually hosting him here in, when he traveled to Istanbul and trying to think about artists whose practice. Uh, their training is is um, 
not necessarily clearly from either Britain or France, but who may have been trained in that context and then come with another set of cultural um, positionings. So again, to speak of the Polish artist Stanislaw Chlowski and to think about the fact that his community here is the Polish community in Istanbul as much as the European, British and French communities here in Pera. Can you tell us more about Stanislavski and what what is actually his practice? What is he doing? When does he end up in Istanbul? Yeah. And why is he in Istanbul? He trains in France under Jérôme and he comes to Istanbul at the invitation of Fuad Pasha and it's a particularly pro- prosperous moment for him. Uh, he's invited to produce paintings for the Sultan Abdelaziz's court and he begins to work to create paintings for Bela Bey Palace. And it's a series of portraits that he creates under commission to Fuad Pasha initially. Eventually, he becomes court painter to, to Abdelaziz himself. And he's set up, he has a studio in Domabachi Palace. He generates a series of sketches that Abdelaziz himself intervenes very directly in and that's interesting to see the the work I've done is actually to go to Krakow and see the sketches uh, over 60 sketches by the Sultan are held there and try and think through their relationship to the paintings that are here in Istanbul in the military museum and in Dolmabachi Palace. He's very successful at the Ottoman court for a number of years. Um, by 1873 we begin to see that that turns sour for him. And so by 1875, he's trying to figure out some other strategy. He's embroiled in a very difficult uh, legal battle to actually extract the last payment from the palace. And he, he hosts Jean-Léon Jérôme, his former teacher here in Istanbul. And so then we begin to see him networking his way back to Paris. By 1876, he's back in Paris setting his, himself up there. He then has this long history in Istanbul. So he's really able to market himself as an authoritative Orientalist painter. Um, so his oeuvre is a very mixed one. He's also a painter who constantly kept his eye on what was happening in Krakow. And he was rivalrous with his peers, such as Jan Mateko, who was becoming very famous for his paintings and of course this is a moment where Zobieski's triumph at the siege of Vienna is becoming a great source for nationalist mythology in history painting in Poland and Chlobolski is generating paintings depicting these battle scenes um, this time for a Polish audience and he endeavours also to market orientalist scenes, harem scenes and so forth for a pan-European market in Paris. Um, So he interests me because he's had this very patchy career and a very peripatetic existence and I find myself often drawn to artists who have been based in Istanbul but also have uh, these very peripatetic careers that are forged elsewhere as well and the kind of complex cultural positions that that results in. So going back to his earlier uh, paintings in uh, Sultan Abdulaziz's court, would you consider those as Ottoman paintings? Or are they Orientalist paintings? And you also brought up the question of sort of uh, Sultan Abdulaziz's uh, intervention. How is he actually intervening in how these paintings are made? With the question whether I'd call them Ottoman Orientalist, I would come down on the side that they're Ottoman paintings because their side of reception was the Ottoman 
empire and the Ottoman capital and that they were created as a series of history paintings for the, the palace. And so once we move from a question of authorship that which might make us question which hand actually did this, was it a Polish artist or was it the Sultan? If it pivots around just solely around a question of authorship, then we could equivocate as to whether they're Ottoman or Orientalist. But I think once we think about the, the site of reception, then indeed they are Ottoman paintings. But they're also, I think, interesting because we have evidence through these sketches of the Sultan's interventions. And the reason why this cache of drawings for the works interests me so much is because what we can see here is a visual dialogue. And so it comes to questions of visual evidence. How do we interpret how much of this work is actually the product of a history painter who's trained in the French Academy under Jean-Léon Jérôme um, and who's generating French academic paintings for the Ottoman court? And how much are we looking at paintings where the Sultan's changes and interventions have had their effect? And we can see it when we look at some of the pencil drawings by Khlobolsky where the Sultan is actually intervened with marks in red ink, not only do we see that he's actually adding in more figures, so he, want, he seems to want to make the canvases more energetic, but we're also seeing that he's, he's the, the form of mark making that is the result of the fact that he's working in red ink and it's not insignificant that he's trained in calligraphy and that there's a kind of fluid mark making here that is that is determined, I think, by, the, by his choice of medium, of red ink rather than pencil. And that you have this sense of the kind of energy of the image where he's suggesting that the Ottoman soldiers move further forward, leaning, leaning up and move out of their saddles more energetically into the battle in front of them. And we can see this in the, in the drawings and then in the final painting the um, artist has executed exactly what he's been instructed to do. There's another way in which I think we can think of these as hybrid objects that are inflected by other forms of, of Ottoman cultural visual production that have longer traditions, and that is in the calligraphic inscriptions that end up on the final paintings. And we know these are not by Khlobolsky's hand because in his um, archives, the archival documents in Krakow, um, we can see his efforts to sort of try and learn Ottoman script, but he clearly does not have the proficiency of a hand that has practised over and over. And we can see that also in two of the paintings, two of the largest paintings that he did that are currently in the Military Museum here in Istanbul, where there's a very awkward signature on them that is clearly his. And then when we look at the inscriptions on the paintings, on other paintings that he does for Domabachi Palace, we can see that there's a proficiency there in the mark making that shows that there's another hand here intervening even in the finished painting. You brought up Jerome a lot. Who is Jerome and why is he important in the story of this interaction between Ottoman and Orientalist painters? He's an interesting character. I would say not even so much because of his painting, but because of his role as a teacher. And the fact that he is allied with the Goupil family, he marries into the Goupil family. And so he becomes part of an international business that marketed, primarily marketed prints. And Who are the Goupil family? The Goupil family is a very economically prosperous family that set up a, a series of points of sale in Paris 
and then all over the world. They ended up selling a lot into the American market and even as far as afield as Australia, they would exhibit their work at the international exhibitions and so forth. They also generated prints. And we know that Jerome made a lot of money from his paintings, but he also made huge amounts of money from his prints because paintings were very expensive objects for the middle classes and the upper middle classes. Prints were cheaper and much more widely available. So it allowed for the dissemination of visual culture. And in the 19th century, we begin to see a kind of slipstream where prints are being circulated around the globe. The significance, if I could return to the idea of Jerome's significance of a, as a teacher, one could cite the, the artists that he's training in his, in his atelier. From We've been speaking of a Polish artist, but I could mention for you Australian artists, uh, American artists, and also that first generation of the Ottoman artists, some of whom come to Istanbul and train with, we know that Sheikh Ahmed Pasha um, trains in, in Paris with Jerome. Osman Hamdi Bey, of course, the, the great celebrity of late Ottoman painting, he knows Jerome later in his life. Jerome is the big man in, in the French academic world in Paris at the time when he's training under Boulanger. So they, he continues to correspond with Osman Hamdi when Osman Hamdi is back in Istanbul and later in his career when he's very established as the director of the Ottoman Museum. Um, so Jerome is very interested in questions of polychromy, of because he's beginning to generate sculpture that is polychromatic. And so he's very interested in the Alexander sarcophagus. So he, he corresponds with Osman Hamdi. So Jerome is actually traveling. When he travels, he's traveling in the slipstream of where his former students are. And that's why he ends up staying with Khlebowski in Istanbul, in his studio in Rue Ahamam in Pera. You brought up Osman Hamdi Bey and uh, one of the things that you discuss in your book and is also a major question is that we talked about um, Ottoman painting, we talked about Orientalist painting. What is Ottoman Orientalism? What are its implications for paintings in the Ottoman Empire? I think Ottoman Orientalism has been, of course, proposed and discussed by a number of prominent Ottoman historians, Osama Makdisi, Selim Deringil, have proposed this notion that the Ottomans saw their own peripheries, saw the population in their empire, particularly the Arab peripheries, and used the kind of uh, intellectual infrastructure of a Western Orientalist mode of thinking, and that this was embraced uh, um, as a way of understanding their own empire in order to discipline it um, in the in the 19th century i'm very crudely of course characterizing but but i guess for our conversation what's interesting is to think about well how much does visual culture participate in this process of constructing some notion of the other within the Ottoman Empire itself. And Osman Hamdi's work has been discussed very much in terms of this notion that he is involved in projects, photographic projects and um, archaeological projects and his own painterly process, where he's often rending from the perspective of an, of an Ottoman elite the, the those who would be understood to be lower classes and the different communities within the Ottoman Empire that, of which he he'd define himself as distinct from those communities. Which communities are these? 
Well, I guess if one thinks about the the ways in which he's involved in, say, the costume book, and that you know, incredibly diverse representations in that book of the range of costumes of the empire from from all of the different geographic or the different vilayets across the empire, the Arab communities, even in Istanbul, thinking about the the different kind of um, religious communities and so forth. I think one of the things that really interests me in terms of thinking about, say, the difference between Ottoman Orientalism and Orientalist painterly practice is the ways in which there's a kind of tension between Ottoman and Orientalist that that one thinks about it as a kind of hyphenated term that Osman Hamdi might actually accede to a position of cultural superiority in relation to his own culture um, and of what we might call mastery and and to express himself in a visual language that he's learnt in Paris that, that has commonalities with academic painting. And yet there are moments, I guess, where he's that's a kind of unsteady um, category. And, and that's what interests me. The moments, you know, when he's a young man in, in Paris and Boulanger asks him to be the subject of his own painting, his own Orientalist painting, and he then becomes the sitter. And so he's kind of cast into a role Unfortunately, we don't have the painting anymore. But I think that's, that to me is something to dwell upon and think what does it mean to be suddenly asked to dress in you know, costume that you don't wear on a daily basis because he's obviously wearing West, Western dress and, and his, you know, his, his version of how he dresses as an Ottoman elite is not exotic enough for, for Boulanger when he comes to make this, this painting. Um, and so I think there's important ways in which one can think about you know the, the sort of critical reception of his work in in when he exhibits and um, you know Edem Eldem's done very important studies of that reception in Paris and the ways in which uh, the reception and and in indeed in in London as well thinking about the ways in which the critical reception he's he's kind of admitted as the outsider as as a very promising Ottoman painter um, and and indeed um, he seems to actually be accepted in a way that is um, allows him to stand as a d- distinct cultural figure who, who manages to be an international cosmopolitan figure that can traverse cultures. Um, and I think it's also important to sort of register those moments when he's seen to be perhaps not that within Europe. And I think we do see with his reception a kind of moments of equivocation. So is but is he producing for an Ottoman audience or for a European audience? And you mentioned before that in terms of, for example, the Polish painter, that what makes the work either Ottoman or Orientalist is the fact that it's it's the audience, it's the intended audience of it. With Osman Hamdi Bey, who is he producing this work for? And does his does it mean his work is Ottoman Orientalist? or an Ottoman Orientalist work? Mm. I, it's a question with, with a whole lot of question marks that's still penned, I think. I mean, it's primarily a private practice and most of his work does not get exhibited. The majority of it is exhibited in Europe, in France and in Britain. But there is also work that is exhibited in Istanbul. And I guess when we're thinking about an audience for this work when it's in Paris, it, it sits more comfortably as what one might call a kind of Orientalist practice for that audience. And when it's here and exhibited in Istanbul, 
it's really a question of a, a very polyglot kind of audience for the work that's being exhibited. Um, if we think about the exhibitions that are happening so intermittently here in Istanbul in the 19th century, the first group of them in 1873-75 initiated by Shekhar Ahmed Pasha, the second group of them in 1880 and 1881 and initiated by the expatriate communities under the auspices of the artists of the Bosphorus and Constantinople. But we're seeing the exhibitors in within those each of those exhibitions are very diverse. So we're seeing the Armenian artists contributing work, Greek artists, um, we're seeing British, French, Italian, Polish, Danish, as well as the Ottoman and that generation, the 1860s generation um, of Ottoman painters who have trained in Europe and are exhibiting here. So, you know, the question of their their audience, it's extremely diverse if we think about um, who's, who's uh, seeing the work when it's here. But it has to be understood that the majority of his work is actually not seen by anybody. Or, or rather, let me say, it's more circulated for a small group of friends. It doesn't have the kind of public presence that exhibition culture generates. You talked about exhibitions. We talked about all of these characters who end up at some point in Istanbul. What is the place of Istanbul in the larger global production and circulation of paintings? I think it's it's a really important to approach this question methodologically and to think about how we've understood 19th century art. And I guess just to go back a step and think a little bit about, you know, when, when I was a student, French art was the avant-garde art of the 19th century. And it was the the changes in artistic practice that were issuing out of France, out of Paris, that were understood to be modernist practice. And in that context, that there's a certain conversation around conservative art for which Jerome actually stood for, the academy and a tradition that was being overcome in the 19th century by the sort of heroic avant-garde. That is a, has been an entrenched narrative around modernism in the discussion of 19th century art. Within that framework, Ottoman art of the late Ottoman period had absolutely no place in the picture whatsoever. Now, it's fair to say that for a lot of years, Ottoman art has had a very important place in a history of Turkish painting and that it is often stood for 19th century art was the first turn towards easel painting. Um, and the generation that went to Paris in the 1860s were important because they were forging a new path with a new medium for painting. And th the question has pivoted around, I guess, how much that was understood to be too foreign and how questions around the Turkishness of late Ottoman art, I guess, have been posed. And so you have your Ottoman painters, um, Osman Hamdi and Shekhar Ahmed Pasha, the two most well-known amongst that group within this story about Turkish modernism. And in recent years, the whole question of that story of a relationship between national traditions and then the preeminent 19th century modernist story emanating out of Paris has been profoundly challenged by a notion of a global history of art. And I think this is where our conversation around Ottoman painting is seen through a different lens, a new lens, if you like, to think about it. And it's one of the things that challenges me as someone who's come from 
an academic tradition in Australia and thinking about the peripheral nature of Australian art history that has sat very much within a nationalist rhetoric around the consolidation of Australian identity. And our great national painters also emerged in the 1880s in, through landscape painting. And that has seemed to be very peripheral to a notion of the heroic modernist avant-garde emanating from Paris. So there's been a kind of temporality that's, that has beset this story of modernism, that all of these peripheral modernism, whether they be in America or they be in Australia or Turkey, that they are belated on the scene and that these artists are simply either they they go to Paris and, and join the wrong band, they join the conservative tradition that is that modernism is is turning away from, or they actually are belatedly assimilating the visual language of the avant-garde. Now, it seems to me that that is such a problematic way of approaching any of the forms of peripheral modernism. And overlaid on that has been a conversation around Orientalism in relation to the development of late Ottoman art and this whole question that we've been touching on about whether or not this work is problematically too invested in Orientalist practice and an Orientalist mindset. One of the things that's interested me about looking at, say, the exhibitions emerging in Istanbul is the range of different voices to think about the Ottoman-Armenian artists who are working in this context and to think about what their contribution is. Um, and to think about what it would have meant for the Armenian communities here in Istanbul. Rather than think about cultural exchange and cultural contact as simply a one-way process of influence that comes from the centres of Europe to the peripheries, to think more about a much more networked understanding of those relations of cultural influence, to try to think about the ways in which that Istanbul itself becomes a centre of sorts, but it isn't a centre in the same way that Paris is a centre or Britain is a centre. There's been an edited volume published in recent years called Is Paris the Capital of the 19th Century? where the question has been asked about can we still call it the capital of modernism? Should we still be thinking in these terms? And if not, where is Paris in our understanding of 19th century art and visual culture? Um, and, you know, I think that's fertile ground for rethinking a context like Istanbul where you have a, a deeply international community of artists. I mean, I think one of the things that also interests me about Ottoman painting in, in the 19th century is it's not really the primary art form by which the Ottoman state articulates its power. So I think architecture and public ceremony are by far more important visual forms for articulating as vehicles of Ottoman statecraft. Um, and so in a way that's why painting is interesting because you have all sorts of practitioners who are actually involved in painterly practice and in the artistic community here in Istanbul. You're not simply looking at painting as a as, uni as uniformly a product of the Ottoman state. And I think that's where conversations around photography have become particularly interesting. And I know the work that you've done um, with Zeynep Celik and, and the, the, the conversation you had indeed on the Ottoman History Podcast in recent times about asking the questions about 
photography is visual evidence, but also thinking about the way photography might tell us about other histories, histories from below, about thinking about the minority communities and so forth, and, and the ways in which something like photography is taken up and disseminated and utilised in ways that will tell us other stories. Thank you. We'll continue the conversation after a short music break. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Zainab Azarbadagan, interviewing Mary Roberts about paintings and visual culture in 19th century Ottoman Istanbul. So we talked about Ottoman painting, its relationship to Orientalist painting, and the idea of looking at this as networks of uh, production and circulation of visual culture and paintings. Um, now I would like to ask more specific questions about what's happening in Istanbul. You touched upon the fact that the Ottoman state is involved in this production, but it's peripheral in terms of other kinds of visual culture that they're interested in and involved in. Specifically for painting, what is the role of Ottoman state and Ottoman court in these networks of production, circulation and collection of paintings? I would say it's interesting to approach that in terms of genre, and I think the f the first in the first part of the nineteenth century, a very important genre for the state's embrace of Western style easel painting and print culture is portraiture, and so it's the portraits of the Ottoman sultans that become part of Ottoman statecraft when they are gifted in the diplomatic arena. And of course, this also becomes um, important within the Ottoman Empire itself. And in the first chapter of my book, I was particularly interested in John Young's print album and thinking about that book, which is an Ottoman state commission initially, but it's a failed commission. And because the book ends up being released commercially um, in Britain, and the printmaker who's made this extremely luxurious mezzotint volume, it's important to understand how expensive mezzotint is to produce and therefore why it was seen to be a prestige object that would be something that would be desired as a history of the sultanate in portraits to be distributed through the diplomatic networks. But when, an, when the printmaker, John Young, had produced it and he realises that the commission's just fallen over, he then needs to recoup his costs. And what interested me about that was reading the text that he appends to it, which gives this, if we think about the portraits themselves that are portraits of the sultan, the sultanate from the origins right up through to the contemporary um, Sultan, and to think about that as a kind of version of Ottoman history through portraiture, especially with the vignettes below each of the portraits, which which show us what the territorial accomplishments were of the sultans or their cultural accomplishments and so forth. When it's reproduced and and distributed commercially in Britain, the historical account that is appended to it really peddles a notion of the Ottoman Empire in decline. So it's the decline narrative that becomes a very familiar story in Britain and France in their perception of the Ottoman Empire by the late 19th century. But, but it's interesting to me to think about that frame story, but also to think about what happens to the volume as it's moving between one place and the other. Um, when it comes back to Istanbul, it ends up then being 
reproduced and circulated as cuts de visite so that it's available to a much broader audience here in Istanbul. And it becomes the model, really, for representing the Sultanate. It's the most popular of the 19th century portrait albums because it's codified the, the Sultanate visually. And I think what's interesting then, I approached that in terms of thinking about how can we think about forms of cultural exchange in this history and that we shouldn't really just be thinking about this as a project that's originated from the state, um, from the Topkapi Palace, that it's a project that has a longer history where the volume itself has actually been re recast over that history. And I found a very useful theoretical model in the work of Nancy Munn, who's actually worked on an Indigenous um, community in Australia, the Walpiri, and looked at their visual traditions and indeed their forms of cultural ritual. And I was very interested in her notion of the law truck because she talks about this idea of the law truck that when it's involved in ceremonial ritual, the movement of the truck actually determines the positioning of bodies in relation to their hierarchy within the Walpiri community. And so there's a kind of phenomenological relationship to this vehicle and that places people, but it changes over the time of the ritual. So if we think about the movement of this portrait album between the Ottoman palace and Britain and back to Istanbul, then we've got a, a sense of it an object that is actually changing over time. And of course, you know, one uses culture models, theoretical models from other contexts with a great degree of care, especially when it, one's talking about cultures as different as the Indigenous Australian community populations and Ottoman culture. But it seemed to me a very useful way of thinking about the movement of, of a work of art and specifically with print volumes because they are often multi-authored and they have multiple sites of reception. They, they ha often have text and they have image. And so how do we actually think about these relationships between text and image as they change over time? So I guess that's one way of thinking about it. The other, Obviously the Ottoman state is then, you know, to skip later, the Ottoman state is very important in terms of patronage of a generation of Ottoman painters who were sent to Europe in the 1860s. So, in and in terms of setting up the institutional infrastructure, they're involved in setting up the the um, the first academy of arts in Istanbul in the early 1880s. So there's a, there's a sense in which one can think about the inst the um, institutions of art and the practices of training that are being sponsored by the Ottoman state. Um, one can think of the kind of projects where the sultans themselves, who are particularly interested in visual culture, are employing court painters. Uh, I've done some work on Fausto Zanaro, the Italian artist who worked for Abdelhamid II, and of course became very important in in that, and and actually you know worked for the sultan over a very extended period of time, um, was given somewhere. To live in Istanbul um, and was encouraged to do a whole series of paintings that now are in the Domobachi Palace. And one can think of that in terms of the visual culture of Ottoman statecraft. But I think when we look, just to turn back again to the idea of a kind of the Ottoman state initiating a series of institutional initiatives within the Ottoman Empire, you know, when we think about what this scene is like as compared to other scenes, it's very different from the scenes in 
Paris and in London because, you know, the Royal Academy and the Salon, which are the major institutions for production and reception and training for artists in the 19th century, these are long, you know, they're well-established institutions that come into being in the 18th century and by the 19th century a very large institutional so, again, you know, we, there's one perspective that could say that the Ottoman Empire is, in fact, a latecomer to this practice, if we take the institutional prog progress as the marks of the accomplishments in this context. And I think we need to throw that up again for reconsideration. It's like if we're going to use that, we're going to fall back to this very familiar narrative of belatedness. So how do we begin to kind of wrestle with... Um, a context where practice is, you know, there's a lot of important practice that's generated for a whole range of different stakeholders. Um, the, the Ottoman Sultan and the palace itself is a very important site for generating painting practice. It is the institution, I guess, that precedes the art academy itself. And then you have the individual artists, foreign artists, such as Guimet, who's training artists, the French painter Guimet, who's working for the Ottoman Sultan Abdelaziz, but also training artists here in Pera. And then you've got a whole range of other, Mary Walker, who also, I mean, her role in late Ottoman culture and working for, raises the question of gender, because she's working for palace women, training some of them in painting, um, painting their portraits, but that's a painterly practice that observes the gender-segregated norms of late Ottoman culture. So this is another way in which we can think of state, the, the Ottoman state and visual culture in the Ottoman palace, but it, it, ha it has its own set of questions around gender. What is happening in terms of, in the world of painting outside of the state in Istanbul? Uh, you mentioned uh, Para. Is Pera one of the centres outside the court, yeah. uh, the palace? Yeah, I guess I, what I haven't mentioned in this conversation so far is the role of mili the military as, a, as a, within the state structure for training. Uh, and, um, and that obviously is training in draftsmanship and so forth that relates to military practice and military strategy. And of course, before I get on to your question about Pera, that, that has to be sort of registered as, as a very important. And I think what we... What we get there is a kind of visual practice that, that probably looks more like a kind of amateur practice in some ways because it doesn't have the kind of smooth visual language of 19th century academic painting. It has its own, I think, quirky visual visual language. That's just to sort of add that into the conversation as well. But you asked me the question about Pera. And, of course, Pera is the site... Um, of the foreign embassies at that moment. It's also the site, as Ottoman historians have elaborated, for a lot of the <coughs> experiments in modernisation that are tested here in Pera. In terms of painting, it is this—it's the space where foreign artists set up, where they, where a lot of them live, where a lot of them set up their studios. And I guess you know, if I could go back to Stanislaw Chlebowski as an example. I don't I want to think about the distinctiveness of Pera as a site, but also the ways in which an artist like Stanislaw Chlebowski actually works between at least two studios in Istanbul. One is in the Domobachi Palace, where he's working for the Sultan Abdulaziz, and the other is in his home in Pera. And he's setting up his home in Pera and his studio as a semi-public space. Now this is something that artists 
in Europe are doing as a way of marketing themselves, that these artists' homes became semi-public spaces. We think about, you know, the very famous examples, Frederick Leighton in, in London, um, Jean-Léon Jerome in Paris. Their homes became spaces for entertainment, but also ways of self, forms of self-promotion. Now, in a context like Ottoman Istanbul, where foreign artists are trying to make their way here, you know, the big game in town is to get the Sultan's patronage, but also to be selling to a local foreign market for art and an elite Ottoman market for art. So in the absence of a kind of annual salon or Royal Academy exhibition space to promote oneself as one did in France and in England, the studio, I think, becomes a very important site a semi-public space. So, you know, indeed, Klobowski is writing to his family saying, I hosted Jerome in my studio. I went out and I refashioned my studio. I went and bought nails and, and you know, hung my carpets in a new way and all this sort of thing. And this actually is how my work at the moment has progressed because the next book that I'm working on is on thinking about um, this the space of the Orientalist interior and the ways in which these interiors become, how they relate, how they become important spaces for sociability in the 19th century, but also thinking about them as works of art. So I'm really interested in, in again, at this time, instead of studying networks within one city and thinking about, as I did with Istanbul Exchanges, the kind of centrifugal dispersion of artists and artworks out of Istanbul, uh, and of course there's key works that stay here, but trying to think through this relationship of materials that's very dis diverse and diffuse. I'm actually this time using the, the artist's studios as the nodes and thinking about studios, uh, looking for instance at Jerome's studio, Albert Gupil's studio, Klobowski's studio here in Istanbul, the British consul William Henry Wrench's studio, thinking about Osman Hamdi's studio, the, the work of British artist Frederick Leighton, but also trying to think about not just these, I mean, they're very important for history of Islamic art. So once... What is in these, what is in these studios? Is it just paintings or are, do they have other... The ones that interest me are artists who collect Islamic art. And so the ones that I'm interested in, uh, William Henry Wrench, for instance, is the vice consul, eventually the consul, British consul based here in Istanbul. He collects work and it is very fine work. Um, Iznik, you know, the best period of Iznik tiles. He has beautiful em Ottoman embroideries. He's been based across um, the Middle East for most of his career. So he's well positioned to to create this collection that ends up becoming part of the v Victorian Albert Museum collection. Albert Gupil and Khlobowski's collections end up actually as part of the Louvre collection. So what I'm interested in is these foundational collections that relate to what is now the canons of the history of Islamic art. But thinking about what these interiors, these works of art meant in the context of 19th century interiors. So that this is something that interests me a lot when we think about spaces such as Pera, to think about not just about the, the district as a unit, as a whole unit, but also to think about characters like Chlobowski, whose connections are with the Polish community 
further up the Bosphorus and also with his family in Krakow, that he's creating an interior in Istanbul, he's working in an interior in the Domobachi Palace, but he's also um, sending works to Gupil in Paris, to Jerome, and he's also um, sending things to his family. So leads us to questions of cultural theft because we know that in his collections are very important tiles that have been taken from tombs here in Istanbul. And we c I've been able to trace some of them back to their source. And we know from the records in the Victorian Albert Museum that they were taken out by British naval ship um, in 1896 after Wrench's death. And the reason they did that was to avoid the Ottoman customs that would have prevented items from religious buildings going out of the country. So the new project is really taking me towards questions about the construction of major collections of Islamic art in key museums in the West, but it's also asking a question about what is this early history of Islamic art before you get a codified sense of what the masterpieces of Islamic art will be. And M Munich in 1910 is an important turning point for exhibiting Islamic art because you get a process of canon formation of what are the key works, but also you get a principle of isolating the works. When we're looking at these interiors that, that I've been investigating, we're looking at very eclectic interiors where things are the mode of, of installing them is intriguing and they're, you know, they're, I think they've been dismissed too quickly as just um, eclectic interiors without really thinking about the idea of visual logic to them. So I thought, well, what if we actually approach these as if they were works of installation art? What if we began to think about how they're creating certain stories? And in this context, I was particularly interested in the work of William Henry Wrench and we only know how he installed it through photographs um, by Begren, four photographs. But in it, we see that he owned two works by Osman Hamdi. And the question for me was, well, what are those works doing? What, what, are they, how, what meaning do they make in that context? And I guess I got particularly interested in the whole question of, can we, can we consider a kind of counter-reading? Um, especially as the one of, it's one of Osman Hamdi's paintings of the green tomb in Bursa that is exhibited there and to try and think about it's exhibited opposite a collection of Ottoman clocks produced and pocket watches produced by the Ottomans for the Brit and the British for the Ottoman market in the 19th century. So how could we think about how questions of time are operating here where you're looking at the temporality of prayer or, uh, as against modern temporal temporality as it's being articulated through the, the clocks and watches and so forth. So, yeah, these are, these are ways in which I'm interested in continuing to investigate what a place like Pera might have generated in these interiors. They're also interesting to me because they're temporary. You know, it's dismantled in 1896. Wrench's interior is dismantled in 1896. Some of the objects are taken into the Victorian Albert Museum collection. Other objects just disappear. Um, there's also a moment where the keeper from the South Kensington Museum, now the Victorian Albert Museum, makes a judgment that this that he's only choosing 72 of the objects because the rest of it is not really art. It's it's the later stuff. It's it's late 18th and 19th century Ottoman work. Now this is interesting because what he's saying is not art is Osman Hamdi's work, amongst a whole range of other things, and so. That's intriguing to me, the questions of aesthetic valuation, that at one moment this is not art and then of course we've, we've witnessed it becoming 
Turkish art in the 20th century. Again, we're getting back to that idea of the malleability of what one designates as as objects of cultural value within a certain context at a particular moment in time. Are the exhibitions functioning outside the state or are they part of the state patronage of yeah. uh, paintings and art? I guess when we're looking at the 70s and 80s, we need to make a distinction between the ones in the 1870s that Sheikh Ahmed Pasha is organising and that are being sponsored by the state, supported by the state, um, and that they're located in the Dar al Funun and in the um, tra- school of training uh, in the arts. So it's so there's a sense in which they have a relationship to the, a stronger relationship to the state than the ones in the 1880s, where one is held in Tarabia, the other is in Tepebasha at the municipal gardens. So we could make a distinction between one set of exhibitions and the other in terms of state patronage. But I think it's too straightforward just to simply say that the 1880s ones are Orientalist because they're run by the foreigners and the ones in the 1870s are Ottoman because they're run by Sheikh Ahmed Pasha. I think we need to really think about the multiple pathways for reading these exhibitions and the, the, what, the investment of their contributors. And one way into this was actually looking at the reviews. So within the study, you know, within the social history of art, it's a very conventional thing to, if you're looking at French or British painting, to look at reviews because there's a very established review culture in those contexts in the 19th century. If we move to Istanbul, we don't have, again, we're getting back to that question that the institution is the institutional structure for reviewing art, for exhibiting art, isn't here until the early 1880s. So how do we think about the reception of art prior to that? What evidence do we have? Well, we have the evidence of reviews in the Levant Herald, in La Turquie, in Osmanla, and even in some of the Armenian language newspapers. And that was interesting to me to think about uh, Armenian reviews that are being published in Tbilisi and these exhibitions are being spoken of in Tbilisi. There's also Danish reviews of the exhibition of 1875. I refer to them as gossamer threads of evidence and and again it's a question of how do you understand what what they can tell us and and I think they do speak to us of the different audiences for art here that speak to Armenian the priorities of the Ottoman Armenian community here in Istanbul and their concerns that one could see as quite distinct from the the priorities of the Ottoman state Um, but of course one has to understand in this period you have a lot of the elite Armenians also working for the Ottoman court so it's a it's a complicated conversation about the cultural significance but I think if we're thinking about the exhibitions that take place in Istanbul um, then we really need to think about these multiple audiences and and the textual evidence we have for the multiple reception of the work. So we talked about sort of the place of Para, the studios, the exhibitions, production of paintings and their reception and circulation. In the studio, one of the things that you mentioned, which was very interesting, is that these paintings are being sort of exhibited alongside other works of uh, Islamic art. So what is the relationship between within the studios or even outside between these paintings and other works of Islamic art, whether what is the relationship to the past in terms of and also to the current production of visual culture? Mm. 
Look, it's interesting when you think about it in terms of what Osman Hamdi is often representing, which are the Ottoman decorative arts traditions. And so he is actually making those connections within his paintings. And so are the Orientalists at this moment, um, the Orientalist collectors. They're fascinated by Ottoman visual culture. It's, it's in a period where Islamic art is not yet codified into, it's being codified and the, f the collections are being formed in Europe. And it's not until 1914 that we see the first legislation preventing the export of Islamic art from the Ottoman Empire. And you get with Osman Hamdi's brother, Edhem Pasha, a very strong push to create your collections of Islamic art. But Islamic art is always part of the Ottoman Museum in the late 19th century. Even though there's not legislation to prevent the export of, of um, Ottoman um, art, we are seeing that the, the South Kensington Museum understood that the Ottoman customs would have taken anything that they saw were religiously significant objects. So you've got a set of criteria that are coming through there in practice and at the border. So this is why this period up until 1910 really interests me because you've got, a, you've got all the ingredients for the formation of what will become a history of Islamic art, but you've got a lot of amateur collectors, you've got artists like Osman Hamdi painting, you know, the green tomb in Bursa, you've got the Heritage Project, the Ottoman architecture book that is generated for the World's Fair in Vienna in 1873, this first Ottoman history of Ottoman architecture being written, which is calling for a new valuation, a new valuation that will be a way forward for Ottoman architecture, for Ottoman um, interior decoration, for the crafts. And yet these things are, are intermittent interventions and so I think that's that's what what interests me about it. Let's end on what is what is the importance of visual culture for historians and how they should be analysed and looked into. The whole question of visual arts and the thing that interests me is what do you do when you have visual evidence and no textual evidence? And visual evidence is often, I mean, it, it, it intrigues me because it's actually often much harder to pin down in terms of a, a one singular interpretation of it. Um, and I guess I'd give an example of Stanisław Chlebowski. Um, I mean, I've done a huge amount of work getting his letters translated from Polish where he writes about waiting for the Sultan to bring back the next painting and so forth. And we have the documents in the Bashbakanlik archives where he's being instructed to to go to the, the sweet waters of uh, Europe in order to paint one of the paintings that will be. So we have this textual evidence, but we don't really know what happened between the Sultan and Khlobowski when they're working together in the studio in Dobabachi, unless we look at the visual evidence. And that's a really unique thing because, as I was saying much earlier in this conversation, you know, we have the marks of both artists there on the page. So we really need to bring to bear uh, our an acuity in visual analysis that looks at what kind of evidence that is and what kind of arguments we can marshal. 
thinking about the textual evidence in relation to it, but in a sense that really exploring what it's possible to say about these as a result of this visual evidence. Because I think to ignore it, you end up with a much more impoverished sense of what late Ottoman culture is. Uh, perhaps this gets back to the sense in which Stanislaw Chlebowski's battle paintings are Ottoman paintings, and yet you know, one of the authors of them is not Ottoman. Thank you, Mary. Uh, I wanted to ask now, what's next? Uh, we've talked about painting, we've talked about the relationship between painting and other forms of visual culture. We've talked about Ottoman painting, its relationship to Orientalist painting. Uh, we've talked about individual painters and sort of their role, the Ottoman state, the role of the Ottoman state, the role of para and studios um, and exhibitions in para and the place of Istanbul in the more global uh, networks of production of paintings. Uh, and also in a beginning of sort of Islamic art and collections. So what's next? The project that I was speaking about a little bit earlier on artists as collectors of the Islamic arts, that's the, the next book project that I'm completing at the moment. Um, and I'm also working on a number of other things. One is actually an English translation of the 1873 architecture volume that'll be published in the Getty-funded journal Art in Translation. The other project that I've been working on is actually looking at a number of artists who came here as illustrate and worked as illustrators and whose work was actually published in the British press. So looking at um, Walter Horsley, um, who came here in 1875, and also looking at Constantine Guy, um, who becomes very famous, of course, as the illustrator because of Charles Baudelaire's essay, Paint The Painter of Modern Life. Um, but he worked for the Illustrated London News um, during the Crimean War. So I've become, I'm working a, a little bit of work on that at the moment. So a number of irons in the fire. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, Professor Roberts, I'd like to thank you uh, very much for joining our conversation today. For those of you who would like to find out more, we encourage you to pick up a copy of Professor Roberts' book, Istanbul Exchanges, Ottomans, Orientalists and 19th Century Visual Culture, published by University of California Press in 2015. And we look forward to your future publications. To stay abreast with podcast updates and new episodes, follow us online at ottomanhistorypodcast.com where you can also see some of the paintings as well as a bibliography on the topics we've discussed in this episode. Please join our Facebook community of over 30,000 listeners. Thank you for listening.